Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Bibles to First Peter chapter two. Peter. First Peter chapter two. Now I'm not the world's most romantic husband. So I'm laying myself out bare a little bit this morning, but let's just for pretend's sake, pretend that it is Dawn and mine's twenty-fifth wedding anniversary. That's two years away, but let's just pretend for the sake of argument that it's the the silver anniversary. It's the anniversary where husbands go all out for their wives. It's the 25th wedding anniversary. And here's what happens. I forget to make reservations at a really nice restaurant, so I take her to McDonald's. (laughs) And as we're there in the the candlelit dinner at McDonald's and I'm biting into my Big Mac, and I look at her across the table and look in her eyes and say, you know what? It's a good thing you haven't got fat after all these years. (laughs) And then I say to her, I've got a gift for you, honey. And she's waiting for that moment. And after I take another bite into my Big Mac, I pull out a generic greeting card and I hand it to her and say, this is what husbands are supposed to do on the anniversary. So here's a card saying I love you because, after all, isn't that what I'm supposed to do on these types of occasions? Now, would Dawn be mesmerized by my romantic prowess? Would she be swept away in a moment of joy and say, this is the greatest anniversary I've ever had? Or would she slap me in the face and feel hurt and feel dejected? The second one, you're right. I may be saying that I love her, But it's like I'm going through the motions. It's my duty. It's become a ritual. And really with my attitude and my actions, I'm giving her sloppy leftovers. I'm not taking the care to show her that I truly do love her. You see, I'm celebrating our anniversary because I have to, not because I want to, and she's worth it. It's not because I treasure my wife. It's because simply it's something that you do. Now, why do I bring up this whole issue of treasuring your wife, valuing my wife? I rarely have ever done this in a sermon before. I don't think I've ever done this in a manual in almost 12 years I've been here. I'm going to preach somebody else's material. To begin the new year, I decided to reread a book I had read many years ago by a Puritan named Thomas Watson. And the book is called The Godly Man's Picture. The Godly Man's Picture. It was written in 1666. And so I love to read the Puritans because they're not influenced by the modern-day psychobabble that a lot of us have to imbibe. And they really had a keen understanding of human nature, and they go deeply into the depths of God's Word and who God is. Is And so over the past month, I have been reading this book, rereading this book, and it's really been impacting 
the way that I view the Lord, and it's just been a good um, opportunity to grow closer to Him. And so he asked the question in the book, what does a godly person look like? A person who's growing in Christ, a person who's godly, a person who's walking in Christ, what does that person look like? And he gives 25 descriptions. Now, I'm not going to give 25 descriptions this morning. We'd be here all day. But it's his seventh characteristic that's really struck a chord with me. And his, his seventh characteristic of a godly person is this. A godly person, he uses the word prizes Christ. And so for this morning, what I want to do is I want to take the gleanings that I've received from his book along with the scriptures that he's used to share with you what does it mean to treasure Christ. So I'm giving Thomas Watson credit this morning for my sermon outline and for the scriptures. But I think from time to time it's important for us to listen to the voices of the past who have gone before us and have walked with the Lord. Many of you will probably never read this book. I encourage you to go get it. But you probably will never read it. But it's good to just be reminded of what it means to treasure Christ and to hear the encouragement of those who've gone before us, who've walked deeply with the Lord. Now, the Puritans are very, very meticulous in how they wrote. They would give their thesis, their point, and then they would explain their point, and then they would give what they call uses. We would call them application points. And so what Thomas Watson does is he gives two big theological truths and then seven application points. And that's what we're going to do this morning, is we're going to dive into the scriptures and ask the question, what does it truly mean to treasure Jesus? So here's point number one. Jesus is in himself worthy to be treasured. Now let's look at this in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4 and going through verse 7, I want you to notice how Peter describes Jesus. As you come to him, that's talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter describes Jesus as a living stone. Very interesting terminology. Borrows heavily from the Old Testament this whole idea that God is laying a foundation stone, God is laying a cornerstone, God is laying this foundational stone... But people have rejected this stone. It's from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 16. Therefore says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, 
a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste. Jesus is the cornerstone, but I want you to notice how Peter describes Jesus. He says that he is, and twice he says, he is chosen and precious. Terminology that Peter uses the word precious. Now, we don't often use that term, that something is precious. What that word means is that it's the highest value. It is costly. It is to be treasured. It is to be cherished. It is to be elevated. It is to be esteemed. That Jesus is in himself worthy to be treasured, to be valued, to be honored. But, but people rejected him. The stone that the builders, uh, the, the, the builders have rejected, this cornerstone, this precious cornerstone. That word precious, Peter uses elsewhere. Go back to chapter 1 for a moment and look at verses 18 and 19. Same original word in the original language. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The precious blood of Christ. So Jesus shed his precious blood. Jesus is in himself chosen and precious. He is valuable. He is worthy. He is to be treasured. Now, you can see this concept illustrated in the parables. So I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. And Jesus tells a parable about the kingdom of God. And what we learn from this parable in Matthew chapter 13 helps to illustrate Jesus as supremely valuable. There are really two parables that go in tandem. They tell the same story, basically. In Matthew chapter 13 is the, the, the chapter on parables. This is where Jesus introduces parables. It's the one toward the end, starting in verse 44. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus is making a comparison here. Jesus is saying, I'm the treasure in the field. I'm the pearl of great price. And if you find me, the treasure, if you find me, the pearl, you will go and sell everything else. Everything else will pale in comparison to the joy of having me because I'm worth it. I'm valuable. I'm to be treasured. I'm to be passionately pursued like a pearl of great price, like a buried treasure. He becomes our chief joy. You see, you honor and you value what you spend the most time upon. Think about where you spend your money. Think about where you spend your time. Think about where you spend your energy. That's what you value most. Whatever you value, whatever you honor, whatever you prize the most, 
you're going to invest all your time and energy and resources into that. Is Jesus your treasure? Billy Bob Harrell was a Pentecostal preacher. He also was a stalker at Home Depot. And in 1997, he won the Texas lottery. He won $31 million. And he went out and bought a bunch of cars. He bought a few ranches, bought a few houses, and eventually committed suicide. And on the way, divorced his wife and was left really with nothing. And right before he died, right before he committed suicide, he said this, winning the lottery is the worst thing that has ever happened to me. Callie Rogers was a young 16-year-old girl who won the lottery in England, $3 million. Now, as a 16-year-old girl, she went and spent that money on vacation. She went and spent it on clothes. She spent it on all of the stuff that a 16-year-old girl would spend if she won $3 million. And five years later, she's a single mother working as a maid in a hotel because she's lost everything. And here's what she said about winning the lottery. My life is a shambles, and hopefully now it has all gone. I can find some happiness. It's brought me nothing but unhappiness. It's ruined my life. Worldly treasures never satisfy. They never satisfy. Tim Keller has written a great book called Counterfeit Gods. And let me read to you how he defines what we often treasure. And I want you to, as, as I read this quote, I want you to think about your own life, okay? Here's what he says. The true God of your heart, okay? So do you want to know what the true God of your heart is? Lowercase g is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? And listen to this image here. When you pull your emotions up by the roots, as it were, you will often find your idols clinging to them. Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. So truth number one. Jesus is in himself worthy to be treasured. He is precious. He is costly. He is glorious. He is the pearl of great price. He is the buried treasure. He is the chief cornerstone. He is worth it all. That's number one. Number two makes sense. A godly person treasures Christ as supremely valuable. If Jesus is in himself supremely valuable, then it makes sense that if you're a godly person, you're going to do that. You're going to treasure him as supremely valuable. Charles Spurgeon has said this, He is to be enthroned, the royal one within your heart, as the king of your affections. Is Jesus enthroned on your heart? Does he dominate your thoughts and your affections? Listen to the psalmist and see if this describes you. Psalm 73, 25 through 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can you say that there's nothing else on this earth that you desire more than Jesus? That your heart and your flesh may fail. You may have really bad health. You may have really bad circumstances, but that doesn't matter. The one thing that you desire more than anything on this earth is Christ himself. Psalm 42, 1 through 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? We don't use language like that to describe our relationship with God. When was the last time somebody came to you and said, how's your relationship with Christ? You said, I'm panting for him. Kind of weird, right? People look at you like, you're a little weird. How's your relationship with Christ? I'm thirsting for him. I'm longing for him. I'm treasuring him. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2, 2? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's a lot of things I want to know, but there's one thing that wants to dominate my thoughts, Jesus Christ and him crucified, because he's worthy to be treasured. Paul would say this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as scubalon. That's the Greek word for rubbish. It's a fun word to say. Say it, scubalon. Not scooby-doo, but scubalon. In order that I may gain Christ. Notice what Paul says there. Everything else is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. And that word rubbish that he uses there, it's actually a kind of a coarse word. It means manure, dung, what is thrown out to the dogs, trash, a rotting corpse. Lovely pictures, right? Everything else is that compared to knowing Jesus. And when he talks about knowing there, he's not just, I have head knowledge about Jesus. No, it's an experiential knowledge of Christ where you want him, you want to gain him, you treasure him, you desire him. It's, and notice the, the wording Paul uses, it's of surpassing greatness. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So those are the two major theological points, and they're very simple. Number one, Jesus is worthy to be treasured. Number two, a godly person treasures Jesus. We can go home now, right? No. Let's unpack this more deeply because Thomas Watson gives seven applications, seven ways this works out in our lives. And he begins by asking a very basic question, an application question. Okay, if it's true, that Jesus is worthy to be treasured, and a godly person treasures Jesus, here's the, here's the obvious question. It's this. Do we truly treasure Jesus as supremely valuable and worthy? Do we do it? And do we do it on a consistent basis? Is it part of our lifestyle, or do we just give lip service to it? And, and if we are not doing it, then what does it look like? What does it look like on a daily basis to treasure Christ, to value Christ, to worship Christ, to have him as our all in all? What does it look like? Thomas Watson gives us seven. 
So let's explore these together. Here's number one. And I've reworded these a little bit more to make it more sense in our, in our modern English. We value Christ above all this world has to offer. We value Christ above all that this world has to offer. What does this world have to offer? Well, 1 John tells us, 1 John chapter 2, 15-17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What does the world have to offer? A lot. And we are drawn to those things like a moth to a flame. Our hearts are drawn to what this world has to offer, whether it be lust, whether it be pride, whether it be materialism, whether it be fame and fortune. We are drawn to that. But John says those things are are passing away. And notice the terminology John uses. Do not love the world. Think about that. Do not have a love affair with the world. Instead, love Christ. Do not treasure the things in this world. Treasure Christ. Do you value Christ above all that this world has to offer? That's number one. Number two, we value Christ in that we cannot live without him. Colossians chapter 3 Verses 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Interesting the way Paul words that. Christ who is your life. Do you see Jesus as your very life? I can't live without Jesus. Now, if we were to say, what are some things you absolutely can't live without? I know what would be number one on everybody's list. My phone. Can't live without my phone. It's my lifeline to reality. I can't live without my laptop. can't live without my car. can't live without my sports team. I, I can't live without my microwave. I can't live without my pets. You fill in the blank of what you can't live without, and I absolutely can't live without these things. Is Jesus at the top of the list? I can't live without him because he's my very life. He's my life. Number three, we value Christ when we go to great lengths to get him. One of my favorite passages of Scripture from the Psalms is Psalm 63.8. It's been a very important verse in my life. It's been a life verse for me for many years now. Psalm 63.8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. 
Now just think about the terminology there. My soul clings. Now, what comes to your mind when you think of the word cling? Static cling. What's the word cling mean? I'm going to teach you a Hebrew word. I want you to say it after me. Can everybody say davak? Okay, good. Last week it was chesed. This week it's davak. The word cling is davak. It's a very strong, intense word in the Hebrew language. It was used in Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall davak to his wife. Shall cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's this intense relationship. It was used of Moses in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10, 20 through 21. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. You shall davak to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that you've seen. You'll hold fast to God. It's, it's used in the Proverbs. Proverbs 18, 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, who devocks closer than a brother. So this word is a strong word. It talks about marriage, the one flesh. It talks about a closeness of a friend. It talks about holding fast to the Lord. But notice how David uses that. My soul clings to the Lord. All I can do, God, is cling to you. I'm nothing without you. My life is in shambles. I am fearful. I am sinful. I am nothing. I'm at the end of my rope. All I can do is hold on to you for dear life, God. And what's the promise in that psalm? Your right hand upholds me. It's an intensity that you will go to great lengths to get Christ. You will cling to him. Thomas Watson says this. Let me give you a quote from his book. What a joy a man takes in that which he counts his treasure. He who prizes Christ makes him his greatest joy. He can delight in Christ when other delights have gone. You can delight in Christ when other delights have gone. When everything else is gone, you can delight in Christ. It's what Habakkuk says in Habakkuk chapter 3, 17 through 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines. Boys and girls, you need to go to the bathroom before the worship service starts. And I'm not trying to get on to you, but it's, it's happening a lot. We need to make sure that we're using the bathroom before the service starts so that we don't keep getting up and disturbing things. Habakkuk 3, 17-18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. When there's nothing left, Here's number four. This was the one that really stuck with me. We value Christ when we get rid of our dearest pleasures for him. When we get rid of our dearest pleasures. That's the word Thomas Watson used. We get rid of our dearest pleasures. We part with our dearest pleasures. It's really the issue of repentance. What do you consider a dear pleasure that you need to get rid of? Moses got rid of 
the fleeting pleasures of sin. Hebrews chapter 11, 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. He was willing to suffer loss. Think of all the things that Moses could have enjoyed in Pharaoh's court. Wine, women, and wealth. It was all at his exposure, all, all, all at his expense, all, all at his, his fingertips. And he was willing to put that all aside because he knew those were fleeting pleasures, the Bible says. They were pleasures that didn't last. They were pleasures that were transitory. They weren't going to last. They weren't going to bring lasting joy. And here's the, the quote that has really stuck with me with Thomas Watson. I'm going to read it slowly. What scorn and contempt they put on the Lord Jesus who prefer a damning pleasure before a saving Christ. Think about that. Do you prefer a damning pleasure before a saving Christ? What do you find pleasure in right now that's damning, that will send you to hell, that is sinful? And it's a scorn, it's a slap in the face to Jesus to prefer that over him who saved you. Number five, we value Christ when we're willing to endure anything for him. We're willing to go through anything for him. It doesn't matter what we go through as long as he's with us. The apostles were beaten. In the early church, Acts 5.41, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were beaten and they were flogged and they, they considered it joyful that they were worthy to suffer for the dishonor of the name of Jesus Christ. Do you endure anything for Jesus? The past couple of weeks we've been talking about the good soldier, the athlete, the hardworking farmer. Remember what Paul said? First, 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect so that they may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. Are you willing to go through whatever as long as you have Jesus? Nothing is beyond the pale of what you will endure to have Christ. Number six, we value Christ when we share the gospel with others so they can value him. If you value Jesus, you are going to want to share him with others and show them how they can value Jesus. What was Jesus' invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 30? From the words of Jesus. Come to me, who? All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you invite others to come to Jesus? Now, when, when he says here, those who labor and are heavy laden, in the original language, it really means a condition. It's, it's your lifestyle. You are, you are heavy laden with guilt. You're heavy laden with sin. You're heavy laden with shame. You, you, are, you are up to your eyeballs in, in sin. And the only way you can get out of that is to come to Christ. 
And so if you value Christ, if you treasure Christ, you are going to look at other people around you who are heavy laden in guilt, and you're going to go to them and say, listen, let me show you the one that can take away your guilt. Let me show you the one that can forgive you of your sins. Let me show you the one who died on the cross. Come to Jesus. He's worthy to be treasured. I treasure him. I love him. You can find him valuable and and treasure him as well. Come to Jesus. He will give you rest. He will be your savior. Number seven, we value Christ in health and sickness and in good times and bad. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Counterintuitive, right? Count it joy when you suffer? This is what Thomas Watson writes again. He who values his Savior aright has precious thoughts of him in a day of prosperity as in a day of adversity. The wicked make use of Christ only when they are in straits. Godless persons never look for Christ except at death, when they are in the dangers of hell. When you're in a lot of trouble, it's when you tend to value Christ, right? Lord, get me out of this. I'm I'm in a terrible situation. When your health is waning, when you're in really bad times, then you really cling to Christ. What happens when those times are going well? What happens when you're not sick? What happens when you're in good health? What happens when you're self-sufficient and things are going well? Do you value Christ then? No, I think our temptation is to be self-sufficient, to be... um, trusting in the flesh to say, you know what, I've I've got this. I don't need Christ. It's somewhat easier to treasure Christ during hard times than it is through good times. Now, God is sovereign over those times in your life, but we should be treasuring him in both. Watson concludes with this plea. Oh, then let us have endearing thoughts of Christ. Let him be accounted our chief treasure and delight this is the reason why millions perish because they do not prize christ why do millions of people die and go to hell they don't value jesus they don't trust jesus and what watson is saying is you can never go overboard on valuing jesus you can never be too radical or too uh, consumed with jesus you can never go too overboard We must treasure him. We must make him our our chief desire. But there's a warning. Because there's a lot of people today that don't value Jesus. They don't treasure Jesus. They may admire Jesus from a distance. He's a great moral teacher. He was a good historical figure. Yeah, he may even rose from the dead. It's one thing to know those facts. It's another thing to get on your knees before that king and treasure him with your all in all because he's worth it. And many people will go through this life and not treasure Jesus. Isaiah prophesied it. In Isaiah 53, that great prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, talking about Jesus, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should 
desire him. You know, Jesus dying on the cross, a bloody death, is not desirable to a lot of people. They will look at the cross of Christ, they will look at Jesus, and they will turn away and say, that's offensive, that's crazy, that's weird. I hope you're one that looks at Christ on the cross and you think to yourself, that is beautiful, that is glorious, and Jesus is worthy to be praised. You see, one of the ways that Jesus gives us to treasure him And it's a beautiful thing that we get to treasure him on an ongoing basis. One of the ways that we can treasure Jesus this morning as a body of believers is in the Lord's Supper. Because what do we do when we take the Lord's Supper? We are proclaiming his death until he comes. We are doing this in remembrance of him. And so when we take the bread and we take the cup, we are in fact saying, I treasure Jesus. I am demonstrably showing by ingesting these into my body that I'm tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, that I love Jesus. And I'm doing this not in the privacy of my own home. I'm doing this with believers who I love and we're doing this together as a corporate way to show the world that we treasure Jesus. So communion is a way to value, to treasure, to honor Jesus. And that's what I want us to do this morning. As we take the Lord's Supper, I want us this morning to do this with joy in our hearts where we would say with the psalmist there is nothing on earth that I desire more than you Jesus in the moment in this in this solemn moment that I that I do this in remembrance of you I want to treasure you Jesus and not just treasure you right now through the Lord's Supper but I want to treasure you when I leave this place I want you to be the chief affection of my heart You're worthy, you're precious, and a godly person does that on a consistent basis. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we do prepare to take the Lord's Supper and ask yourself the question, do I treasure Jesus? Father, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we are reminded of the body and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And Father, when we stop and think about it, it it is, to the world's eyes, probably a weird thing that we do a way to commemorate on an ongoing basis, a way to commemorate on an ongoing basis. your love for us, your death for us. It's a really practical and tangible way this morning to treasure you. You've commanded it. It's an ordinance to do this in remembrance of you. So Lord, would you inflame our hearts with love, with passion, with joy, 
And will we treasure you, Jesus? Not just giving lip service to it, but with the entirety of our lives. And Lord, there may be some in this room that have never done that for the very first time, that they they are here this morning and they do not treasure Jesus because they're lost. May today be their day of salvation where they know the truth that can set them free, that they can repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ and, and ask him to forgive them of their sins and they can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved to treasure you for the very first time. Lord, may we be a people that treasure you, that value you, that esteem you above all this world has to 